Next up is my conversation with the writer Matilda Bernstein Sycamore about her latest book, Sketch to See. But before we dive in, if you find Between the Covers is a regular part of your listening habits, consider becoming a supporter of the show. If you support the show with a per-episode pledge at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers, you can get access to bonus material from each conversation, a copy of Jesse Ball's out-of-print book Vera and Linus, or a signed copy of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, as well as receive notices and intros from me when each episode goes live. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can go to davidnayman.com and click support. Enjoy today's program with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Described by Howard Zinn as startlingly bold and provocative, Sycamore is the author of a memoir and three novels and the editor of five nonfiction anthologies. Her memoir, The End of San Francisco, won the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction, and her most recent anthology, Why Are Faggots So Afraid of Faggots?, Flaming Challenges to Masculinity, Objectification, and the Desire to Conform, was an American Library Association Stonewall Honor Book, and a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. Her novels include So Many Ways to Sleep Badly and Pulling Taffy, and her nonfiction anthologies include Nobody Passes, Rejecting the Rules of Gender and Conformity, That's Revolting, Queer Strategies for Resisting Assimilation, Dangerous Families, Queer Writing on Surviving, and Tricks and Treats, Sex Workers Write About Their Clients. Sycamore has written for the San Francisco Chronicle, Bomb, Book Forum, The New York Times, New Inquiry, Los Angeles Review of Books, Truth Out, Utney Reader, Bitch, and Book Slut, and for 10 years was the reviews editor and a columnist for the feminist magazine Makeshift. In the 90s, Sycamore was active in both ACT UP and Fed Up Queers, hosted the first Gay Shame event in New York, and was one of the principal organizers of Gay Shame in San Francisco. In 2018, she co-organized a queer anti-militarism town hall for trans liberation, not U.S. invasion. She contributed to Against Equality, Queer Critiques of Gay Marriage, and wrote the introduction to Against Equality, Queer Revolution, Not Mere Inclusion. 
In 2008, the Utney reader named Sycamore one of the 50 visionaries who are changing the world. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is here today to talk about her new novel out from Arsenal Pulp Press entitled Sketch to See, a book NPR picked as one of the best books of 2018. Paul Constant at the Seattle Review of Books says, Sycamore has always been a passionate and keen-eyed chronicler of the life and death of American cities. But here she's doing the best work of her life, and for good reason. She's writing for her life. With Sketch to See, she's an avenging angel. Sarah Shulman says, if Sketch to See doesn't become a classic, we are doomed. Matilda has such complete command of craft here that she is able to evoke experience rather than simply describe it. A lesson in how to write, how to remember, how to grapple with history. And Alexander Chi says of Sketch to See, Sketch to See is a call to reject the norms dictated to us by those who would never care about us, but insist on telling us how to live or die as a way of obtaining the approval that will never come. It's also a call to reject even the imitation of those norms. As a writer, Sycamore is someone who has always wanted revolution more than acceptance and dreams that maybe that could be the best party of all. This novel is her grand masked ball. Welcome to Between the Covers, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. So Sketch to See is, is very time and place specific. We're in 1995 and we're in Boston. And I thought we could start by orienting our listeners and readers to both. So maybe we could start with 1995 and, and you could tell us about 1995 with regards to gay rights and gay rights activism and second, secondly, in regards to the AIDS epidemic and, and the progression of what medications are available or not available at that time. Sure. Let me actually, I'm going to start um, with how I wrote the book in, in a certain sense, because I think that will frame both. And feel free to come back to anything that I've missed out. Yeah, of out. course. Um, so I think when I started to write the book, I knew I wanted to write about this particular moment in Boston. And it was a moment when I lived there, and I had memories of my own um, of being inside similar cultures to the cultures I'm describing. Um, and I, I had told these stories, you know, they were kind of elaborate and over the top and, you know, being inside gay club culture, you know, with its late night um, rhythm um, and also sort of, you know, living in a what I call the instead of the nine to five, you know, schedule, it's the 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. schedule. Right. And but I didn't know, like, do I want to write those stories down? And so I was done with the end of San Francisco, and I just thought, well, let me just, I, you know, I'm starting a new project. Let me just start writing about that time. And what happened really fast was that the trauma came through. And so the trauma of living in Boston, a city rapidly afraid of difference, and the trauma of living in a gay culture that magnified some of the worst aspects of straight hypocrisy. So... Um, racism, misogyny, classism, homophobia itself, <laughs> transphobia, everything. Um, and then also the trauma of 1995. And that was actually, to me, the most surprising part. Um, and and that by that trauma, I mean a lot of the characters in the book, they're queens who are, you know, 19, 20, 21. Um, they've all come of age with AIDS suffusing their desires and no way to imagine a path other than certain death in a certain way. And so 
And in a way, it's, you know, in, in trying to, it was interesting, it came through getting that time, like, mm-hmm. exactly right. And I think, you know, I think there's so much nostalgia right now in popular culture for the 90s. And nostalgia always camouflages the complications, the lived experience, um, the messiness, um, and the trauma itself, you know. And so for me, in getting 1995 right, I had to be inside of that trauma. And uh, and so in that sense, the book, in a way, became a kind of generational story. And so this is the generation. It's not the generation that people usually think of when people talk about AIDS in the sense of people who experienced sexual liberation um, in the 70s or, you know, or in the 80s. And then suddenly there was this disease that no one knew about and they saw like their friends just dying off by the dozens and people lost entire support systems. You know, people would take their address books and have to just literally cross everyone out in it because they were all dead. And so it's not that generation. It's a generation that didn't experience sexual liberation and came of age in that moment where everyone is dying. So there's no way to imagine anything else. Um, And I think there's also... So 1995, so let's say, you know, like the beginning of the AIDS crisis in the U.S. would be around in the early 80s. And um, 1995, we, looking from our current moment, can look back and we can say, oh, something's about to change. And what that is is that there are about to be medications that will change HIV from a death sentence into a manageable condition for many, you know. And before that time, and that would be around 1996. So, but in 1995, more people died of AIDS in the U.S. than any other year. So there's no, there's absolutely no way for the characters in the book to even imagine that there could ever be any anything else. So even though we potentially, depending on what we know, you know, like reading the book can can think, oh, something's about to change. The characters in the book are trapped in that moment, right? And so they're trapped in Boston. They're trapped in this gay club culture that offers pageantry but is their promise. And they're also trapped in this this trauma that is partially their own trauma and partially is a generational trauma. Um, Yeah, and so I think in a way the book ended up being about all of those things, about, about being trapped in all of those things in a certain sense. And and so Alexa, the the protagonist, she's moving from San Francisco to Boston, similar to to what you did in the nineties as well. Can you compare and contrast those two places in that specific time? Yeah, absolutely. So for Alexa, um, she has sort of experienced a radical queer um, culture in San Francisco um, that doesn't really exist in Boston, and by that I mean. Uh, like a culture where you can live outside of mainstream straight or gay worlds, right? And create culture on your own terms, create ways of living with and lusting for and taking care of one another that are not predicated on dominant norms. Um, You know, imagining, you know, like non-hierarchical and boldly experimental ways of, of, of living just in everyday experience. And, and specifically, I mean a culture of that that's, like, defined by a neighborhood, defined by, you know, particular worlds, defined by an aesthetic. Um, and in Boston, like, Alexa finds herself unable to find any of that. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but is not, she is not accessible to her. Um, and instead, you know, the kind of... The closest thing that she can find to that, in a way, 
is this gay club culture, which does offer an alternative to, like I said, the nine to five existence and does offer an opportunity to, um, you know, get dressed up, to to flaunt um, a kind of, you know, transgression and um, flamboyance that is defiant in a certain sense. But the culture itself, so in a way, she's trying to make that culture, which is basically the culture of, you know, getting high, dressing up, going out and turning it out and scaring people, you know, like and having fun. You know, she wants to make that culture also um, something where people are also kind of challenging the status quo in deeper ways. Um, But but and so I think in a way that's the tension of the book. Right. Is that a possibility in this? world? what are the possibilities for her? You know. And she has this radical queer analysis, but there's no real way of actualizing it. And so, uh, and that's something I really wanted to like explore in writing the book. You, you've said about Sketch to See in one interview that it's structured by feeling rather than conventional narrative structure. It started in this place of being able to com- be completely vulnerable in a way that nobody else in my family was able to be. In, and it started with being able to visit my father. And I was, could you talk to us about the, the questions that began the book or the, uh, the nucleus of the book as questions for you that then become this fictional narrative and, and what sort of doing a, a, a reckoning with your, your own family um, and how that plays a role in, in bringing that trauma forth in, in 95 in Boston? Well, so that quote, actually, that's about the end of San Francisco. Oh, it um, is? Yeah, So because the end of San Francisco starts, which is nonfiction, um, yeah. and it starts with visiting my father um, before he died of cancer. Um, and in visiting him, you know, I was able to feel a kind of vulnerability that I was never had access to as a child. Yeah. And because I had to project invulnerability in order to survive, I mean, there's no other option. And, and especially in, like, my birth family, it meant, you know, being cold. You know, that was how I, like, you know, my father could be screaming at me and I could just, like, look through him at the wall behind his head. I would, like, practice this. You know, it was like, practice makes perfect. <laughs> and um, going back, you know... Um, so many years after having lived there um, and and having my own, you know, I, like my own self, my own embodiment, my own experience of being in the world, like allowed me to, to like, like I was there and I had no expectation of doing this, but I was just sobbing. I was like, and I was telling him things that I never imagined, you know, um, because I felt them in that moment. I was like, he's going to die. I'm never going to have the opportunity to do this again. I'm going to do this now. And it was so healing. And it was really transformative. And from that came that book, The End of San Francisco. So, but I can connect that to Sketch to See in the sense that, so Alexa is um, like me, you know, um, we have a lot of similarities. (laughs) Uh, There are some differences. Um, And actually, actually, I would say one of the differences in particular is like I was in Boston and I felt trapped, you know, and I left. I was like, get me the fuck out of here. But I don't, the characters in the book, I don't know that they can leave, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, so for Alexa, who, in, you know, is, she is living in Boston and she is also getting ready to confront her father about sexually abusing her as a kid. And that is sort of a central thing in her life. But in her, in, in Sketch to See, I think, I think the tension is there is a really intense vulnerability and I do write toward feeling, but there's also, 
the place that these characters are in is in that place of projecting invulnerability in order to survive. Mm -hmm. So Alexa, you know, she like gets on the T, the subway in Boston, and, you know, someone's telling her they want to kill her. You know, she's like walking in her own neighborhood and, you know, someone's stopping his baby carriage and screaming at her and telling her, you know, what what the hell are you doing in my neighborhood? And she's like, well, honey, it's my neighborhood too. You know, so her, what she needs to do is always project that invulnerability. And so in a way, the book is about the costs that projecting that invulnerability entails, you know. So there is a benefit, which is to actually be able to live (laughs) and to live in a, like, defiant and flamboyant way, right? And not, and for her, it's like, the most important thing is that the bashers and the homophobes and the um, self-hating, you know, gay people who are constantly harassing her, um, they don't, she doesn't want them ever to know that that matters. So the thing to her is just like, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. But I think, yeah, so in a way, the book is kind of about the cost of that. I, I want to push on that that idea of following feeling rather than narrative just a little more in, in the sense of, well, you described the ways people want, wanted to edit your memoir, mm-hmm. uh, The End of San Francisco. So some people wanted there to be a, a more defined arc. So you... You move to the city, you establish a community, and then the community falls falls apart. And you say that it never happened that way, mm-hmm. but that it was always everything at once. And so could you speak to that sim- simultaneity, but also to the idea that an- another quote that you've said that our lives don't have plots. So in other words, when you're writing, you you don't want to be guided by plot because there's something about plot that is maybe counter to actual experience? You know, when we're dead and in the ground, like, and if someone wants to fly over with a helicopter and be like, oh, here, let me plot everything out from, like, point A to point Z, like, maybe that makes sense. But if we're writing about people who are alive (laughs) and living the world, I don't feel like our lives have plots, you know? And I think think imposing this kind of narrative structure, which, you know, the conventional narrative structure, right, is like, I don't know, like, establish the characters, you know, talk about the, the, the setting, the place, you know, introduce everything and then establish some tension. You know, there might be something dangerous is happening. I don't, you know, it's like, oh my God, there's, oh, there, and there has to be a lot of like uh, suspense, you know, and then there's like, oh my God, okay. And then you reach like a crescendo, right? And, and then boom, closure, right? There's something that, that like um, ties everything up. Right. And we now we know we have a reason for experiencing all of this. So all of those things in my own writing, I try not to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, I always want to write through voice first, especially let's say for sketch to see in particular, it's very voice driven. And I cut out anything that got in the way of the voice. And like I want my writing to, to feel spontaneous. But, you know, I did maybe like probably like 12 or 13 drafts, you know, so. So I'm always, like, cutting things out that are getting in the way. And I think that's one way to move toward feeling, you know. And also, in also, and I think also allowing um, everything that's in the book, I want it to shift the language, right? So the book is written in the Queen's vernacular. And, you know, things change the language. So Boston changes the language. Um, gay club culture changes the language. Music changes the language. Trauma changes the language. Desire changes the language. Sex changes the language. The time of day changes the language. And I want all of those rhythms to like become part of it so that you actually can feel like you're inside it. And I think um, for me, uh, but what's interesting in terms of writing sketch to see is that 
as I was writing it, something kind of like a plot did emerge. And I did have the impulse, like, oh, my God, what's going on? I better edit this out quickly because, like, what is this? But then I thought, you know, I mean, the point of, like, experimenting in writing, right, is not just to experiment for no reason. Well, I mean, that is one point, but that's not, the, that's not why I experiment. I mean, I want to experiment to make the writing as impactful as possible, right? And so as this plot was emerging, I was like, okay, well, let me just, you know, go with that. Let me just see where it goes. And um, so there is something like a plot, but it comes from, you know, all these other things and not the other way around. And I think I'm, I've always been told this in all of my writing, that thing about, oh, let's, you know, especially the more, the more um, commercially oriented or more establishment the more extreme it kind of becomes, but it's like, oh, yes, if, if we could just have a... The, the end of San Francisco is happening especially, right? If we could just have this stronger narrative structure to take it to the next level. So many years sleep badly, that also happened a lot. Um, and I think, you know, any kind of... Any analysis or criticism uh, that people say, I do think about it, you know, and I'm like, but, uh, oh, but actually, yeah, that's everything that I'm resisting. So that's not the level I want to go to. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think... I do think that that narrative structure does take away from the feeling. And especially that explication, that's the thing, that's what I always cut out. Like, you know, I don't want to explain anything. I mean, if you, if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't get it. You have to enter on the terms of the characters. That, to me, is crucial. Like, so I don't want to, you know, like, let's say, I mean, ex- explanation happens in people's daily lives, and so that I might use, right? But I'm not going to be like, let me introduce, you know, what are these drugs that they're taking, <laughs> and what is gay club culture, and right. oh my god, there's sex work happening. Let me explain, like, how they got to this dark, desperate, degraded, you know, place, and how are they going to rise up above it, you know? And Because I feel like that's really dishonest. And I think we're told that that makes our writing... I guess when I say we, I mean... You know, anyone that's not at what is considered the center, right? So the center, I think, in publishing and in writing is still, you know, straight, white, Christian men, right? And maybe some straight, white women can like, go in there sometimes. And occasionally other people get to, like, visit for a few minutes, you know, and as long as they're, like, writing on the terms, you know, or that they, as long as they have the same pedigree, right? Like, if they also, you know, went to the Ira Writers Workshop, got a Stegner, and are, you know, have a Wiley, <laughs> you know, agency right. agent, then, yeah, maybe you can put them in the center because they've done their time, right? Like, they know how to be straight white Christian men, even if they're not, you know, or at least to, like, play to that, right? So, so occasionally, like, other people are let in. But I think as long as... I mean, as soon as we explicate our lives like anyone who's not in that you know perceived center i think i actually think it becomes less accessible because we're ruining the entire thing in order to please this imagined audience that i don't know that i believe actually exists right and and so for me i always have to resist that and i would say that across the board in all of my writing in case you just tuned in we're talking to matilda bernstein sycamore about her latest book sketch to see so, so when I think of your pushback um, against this idea of a beginning, middle, and end, uh, that everything's happening at once, and I think about it in, in relation to sketch to see, I, I think both about the ways that Alexa and her friends used drugs and also the way you use present tense in, in telling the story. And it reminded me of a quote by David Wonorovich, who, who plays a, a role in this book also, who said, if I could figure out a way to remain forever in transition in the disconnected and unfamiliar, I could remain in a state of perpetual freedom. And in sketch to see, particularly in the first half, it feels like 
Alexa is aiming for this sort of freedom of the disconnected and unfamiliar, it seems to me. And, and the way that you use present tense seems to keep the questions of the past and the future at bay, mm. which also I think the drugs are doing for Alexa. And I don't think I've ever seen uh, more sort of unrelenting drug use in a book. <laughs> but on the other hand, what's really interesting about it, I mean, it is an escape, I guess, in one level, but on another level, it feels like there's an upside to the drug use. And I, I wanted you to talk about the drugs because you have the feeling as you're in, you're in this present moment that you've established and it doesn't feel sustainable. Like, I feel like, oh my God, when is, how long can this go on? But on the other hand, I feel like there's something vital about it. So tell us about the vital part of the drugs in relationship to the way you're portraying them in a sort of eternal present tense. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say in sketch to see drugs are the way that community is formed. Um, And so we know that that, you know, that is corrupt in a certain sense, but it's also valid. Right. And it is the way that these Queens in particular meet one another and create something a little bit like family. Um, in all of its dysfunction, but also in its way of perhaps taking care of one another in certain ways, it's all through the drugs. The drugs are the gateway into intimacy, into vulnerability, um, into, for some of these, the characters, it's their only way into themselves, you know, themselves at all, right? Otherwise, they're just stuck in, um, in the trauma, I think, you know, and especially the trauma of trying to fit in. You know, I think Alexa is not, she is not really worried about fitting in. She wants to create something else. But most of the rest of the characters, they want to fit in. And they either want to fit in, you know, they want to seem straight. They want to seem like, you know, affluent gay men. They want to, yeah, they don't want to be feminine. They don't want to be uh, flamboyant. They don't don't want anyone to know. But then as soon as they do the drugs, they're like, girl, like, let's go on a journey, you know. And, and so in that sense, it is liberating, you know. And uh, and also, I do think the world that they live in, which is so because Boston, you know, I could say Boston, period, but it's let's just say Boston in 1995, but is so oppressively um, cloistered, you know, preppy, um, like the mindset is so like, you know, everything that we think of when we think of, like, a sort of prep school kind of mentality, like, it's, it's that's Boston, right? And, and also, it's gray, it's dark, you know, it's like, um, the architecture is beautiful, but very, you know, it's just brick, you know, it's like, everything is, and, I, and, there, and there's all this, like, tension in just everyday experience, you know, racial tension um, between, you know, like, uh, white ethnic, you know, groups who are, like, especially Irish and Italian, who are just very upset that their neighborhoods are now becoming neighborhoods of color, you know, and, and then, and then for the characters in the book, there's, you know, the bashers that are everywhere, you know, and so, um, and so to live outside of that, it takes a lot of effort in Boston, and, and they do in some ways live outside of it by existing in this other world. So even if they're in some of the same spaces, so like at one point, they're, you know, 
the after after hours, you know, it's just the after hours that would start at like 6 a.m. when all the clubs are closed. They don't know where to go. And so they start going to the MIT cafe, you know. And so what could be a more conformist space in a certain way, right? It's like, you know, uh, and they're there with like these, you know, they call them the math maniacs, you know, who are also there speculating that are they also on drugs? Like what's going on? You know, they're at like 6 a.m. and they look really, they're, I don't know. So, so even in the spaces that are not for them, um, and that they have not created, the drugs allow for something else. If they were in that space at 6 a.m., you know, the MIT cafe, without that, they'd be, like, you know, falling apart. But, right. like, on the drugs, it's like, oh, let's go in the back. Oh, look at all this white. There's so much white in here. I love the white. Or in a mall, you know, they go, they're often in the, the Copley Center, which is, like, an uh, you know, upscale mall in the center of Boston. And suddenly, you know, they, they're on ecstasy, maybe doing a little coke, you know. And they're just like, oh, like there's this one point, you know, where, where Alexa's looking in this, at this garden, you know, look at all these amazing flowers. It's like incredible. And then, you know, her friend is like, well, you know, Alexa, what's going on? What's going on? And, and she's like, no, I love this garden. And she's like, no, this is a flower shop. <laughs> but it's not. It's a garden, you know. Yeah. And the drugs allow that, you know. And it's not that there aren't other ways to access that, but they do not have access to them. Yeah. What's interesting to me, the way you complicate this portrayal of, of drug use, but you also complicate our notions around recovery, too. Often we would think of addiction and recovery as opposites, and you, you more look at them as two sides of the same coin that maybe um, provide similar things and also enact certain things that are similar, too. So talk to us about um, your considerations around the portrayal of recovery and maybe um, – some of your critiques around recovery, which you know people wouldn't necessarily think you would a person would be critiquing recovery. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. talk about talk about that a little bit. So I write without an intention of what I'm doing. So you know, so as I was writing this book, you know, different things were happening, and I didn't have any idea. I mean, I did start in some ways with my own memories, but then it went somewhere, you know, somewhere else. I mean, I'm using the I'm I'm very meticulous about like time and place, and that is definitely coming from my memories. Uh, and I did even like you know, move back to Boston for a month and a half to, like, make sure I had, like, all the spatial and sensory details, right? Mm. So in introducing the theme of recovery, um, I wanted to show, yeah, in some ways how recovery and addiction are mirror images. And, and so, like, if we, if we look at drugs in the book, uh, in some ways it's maybe even clearer in some ways, like, what they provide, right? They provide um, nourishment in a certain sense. They provide um, a way into embodiment, um, a way into like a sort of ecstatic state of being, um, and, and like I said, they provide community in a certain sense, and they also provide all the downsides that everyone knows, right? right. <laughs> like I don't even have to list them because we all know, right? right? And and recovery, what does recovery provide? Recovery provides community. Um, it provides a way out of addiction and into, in some ways a different way of thinking, Mm. but also in its formulaic ways of talking and being, like, is not, it is in some ways another kind of addiction. So it's like, I have to replace this way of thinking with this other way of thinking, right? And there are a lot of ways to, like, get out of doing drugs, but in this, you know, we're in the sort of dominant recovery, you know, sort of 12-step model. And it's kind of interesting because earlier, like, you know, Alexa and... um, 
Joanna, one of her friends, you know, they, they're like completely satirizing, you know, the recovery, even while existing within it. I mean, Joanna in particular. Um, but then later it becomes much closer, right, in a certain sense. And, and so I think, but also another thing that's very similar is that claustrophobia, right? So drugs, once you cross that threshold of like, oh my God, this is so much fun, it's really just claustrophobia. It's like, how can I you know, allow myself to, like, stay in this feeling that I know is always going to go away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I think recovery is also this very claustrophobic space where people are kind of mouthing these kind of platitudes in order to get somewhere else, you know. But, um, but are they getting there, you know? Or are they just creating something else? And so in some ways it's about what is more damaging. And I'm not sure for everyone, if the drugs are more damaging than the recovery. And I know for some people, they certainly are. And, and I also, but the thing that's interesting, so in the first writing of it, you know, Alexa, you know, is completely scathing about recovery. And, and then as she learns more or becomes more, I think there's this moment in, um, in the book where she has this realization about like gay recovery groups in particular And she says, I don't know if I've ever seen or ever been in a space where gay men are trying to take care of one another. Hmm. And and she and then she thinks, oh, well, I was in ACT UP because she was in ACT UP in San Francisco. But she says, well, but actually there everyone was always fighting, you know, even it was about taking care of one another and here. And so she has that realization. And so I want to open that up as well. So in, in the same sense that I want everything everything to be happening at once. So let's say in terms of the drugs, right? It's all, it's like, you know, the euphoria, but it's also the crash. It's all there, right? That's also what I want to show with recovery, you know? And it's similar. I think there's also that euphoria and the crash, right? Because the euphoria of connection, the crash of feeling like you have nothing. And that can happen in any, just like, you know, a one-hour meeting, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to to take this question of everything happening at once and like bringing it to the level of writing craft and this this choice of present tense versus another tense. Alexander Chi wrote an interesting essay called In Defense of Present Tense, where he talks about some high-profile criticisms of the recent popularity of present tense, where people seem to imply that it was commonly used by amateur writers. And he unpacks this and he debunks it, I think. Um, but for me, I feel like the present tense in sketch to see in evoking Alexa's desire to escape from her past um, but also from the violence of the everyday seems like it works really well. And I want, but I wanted to read a paragraph that she says um, that makes me think of another reason why this might be a great choice for the book. And I just want to hear your thoughts on it. And this, in, in this quote, he's talking about literary criticism. He says in literary criticism, when describing what a writer has done, the writer's work is treated as a continual present a place where everything is still happening each time it is read. This resembles the way victims of assault and trauma think of their memories. They almost always tell the story of what happened to them in the present tense because it is a place still vivid for them in their minds. It is entirely plausible to imagine any of these being an influence on a writer in search of form or texture. So in a way it feels like the the choice of present tense isn't only a way of Alexa's attempt to sort of escape the questions of the past and the future, but also maybe a way to show that 
the past is in the present mm, in a way. Mm, mm, I just mm. wondered what your what your thoughts were about cheese slots. I feel um, a total kinship for what he just said, um, and in this and, and in terms of this book in particular, because because yes, staying in the present is one way to escape uh, the horror of the past and the uh, horror of the future, right? <laughs> You're just like, boom. And I think especially the drugs in the certain sense, like for Alexa, different people do drugs for different things. I think most of the characters in this book are doing drugs to get away, right? They're not doing drugs to like, you know, I mean, they are in some ways to be creative, like to go out, but it's mostly just to like be like floating diagonally up in the air, like in the sky. They want to be in the sky. And so I think, and so that is the present, right? But is it a, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's a present and it's also a distance. Um, and it's all, it's all everything at once in that certain sense. Like, I do think, yes, that Alexa is trying to escape the trauma of the past, but also, yeah, the way that the trauma comes in is always in the present. I so agree with, you know, with that. And so, there's like there's this moment where she's um, in a therapist's office, and uh, and suddenly she's like flooded with um, this memory, and it's not a, it's a memory of her father, and she looks at the therapist's shoes, and she's like, you know, oh, okay, those are different than my father's shoes, so maybe that's not my father, right? So that's a way that the present is a way to escape the trauma of the present, which is also the trauma of the past, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think also if we think of it generationally in a certain sense, um, that feeling like there is, um, you know, like everyone is dying, right? That is a present feeling, and and it is a present, but also it's something that no one's talking about in this book for the most part. The only way that they talk about AIDS is be like, oh, you know, that's someone you better stay away from her. You know, she's got AIDS, right? That would be mainly. And, like, people, like, disappear, and, you know, uh, and people are dying, but no one's talking about it, you know. And so so that's a present that is already existing in the past in a certain sense. Like someone's dead and suddenly they're, they're just past, right? There's no way to, like, um, to synthesize that into, like, your actual experience of the world, you know. And so I think that's another way that the kind of past and present, you know, yeah. intermingle. Well, I, I want to have you read a little section. Yeah, definitely. And... Um, kind of in relationship to you talked earlier about how both for you as uh, a person growing up in your family, but also for Alexa, that there wasn't an option to be vulnerable. Essentially, the the question, the most essential question was one of survival and survival was coming through projecting an invulnerability. So I was hoping maybe you could read a scene for us that sort of evokes some of uh, some of the questions here. Every time we go anywhere in East Boston, everyone stares. I mean, everyone. At the laundromat, it's mostly the kids who talk and point and laugh, until finally one of them comes up to us and says, Are you from Boston? These kids all have East Boston accents, almost like Southie, but maybe a little more nasal. I'm starting to like these neighborhood accents, even if they often come with awful people. And sure, I could point out to these clueless kids that, hello, East Boston is really just a neighborhood in Boston. It's not like its own town or anything. But instead, I just nod my head. Sure, we're from Boston. This kid looks impressed. Meanwhile, 
Polly and I are using the hot cycle on the washing machines to make sure we don't have crabs again. And while we're waiting, we go outside where it's not quite so sweltering and pretend everyone isn't watching. Eventually, we head home, and while we're walking over the bridge to nowhere, someone starts yelling, hey, hey, but we're not going to fall for that one. Then a bottle flies right over our heads, bounces off a wall, and smashes on the sidewalk a few feet in front of us. Maybe if we pretend this isn't happening, it isn't happening. Some woman opens her door, and I don't know what I'm looking for, but she closes the door anyway. Then some guy with greasy hair comes out of his house up ahead, rubbing his face like he can't believe what he's seeing, and then he starts screaming at us. Something about his neighborhood and what the fuck. Actually, it's our neighborhood too, I say. And he says, what? What did you just say? What? I say, we live here, honey. And he spits on the ground, then rushes back inside, and you can hear him going up the stairs in heavy shoes. We keep walking, and just after we pass his house, there's a loud noise behind us, like maybe he dropped a brick out his window. Or not a brick, something bigger. Maybe a cinder block. It kind of makes me jump, but I'm still trying to act like I don't notice, though Polly's already turned. Alexa, she says, do you think he was trying to hit us? I'm looking at her, and she's biting her lip, and we're both holding onto the laundry cart and pushing from different sides, because otherwise it starts to collapse. This is ridiculous, I say, but then I notice Polly's about to cry, so I reach over to touch her hand, even though I know maybe that's not the safest thing. But it's not like anyone hasn't spotted us spoiling their Italian-American homeland. They're already angry about the Latinos on the other side of the square, but we're right next to them. So we push the laundry cart the rest of the way just like that, with my clammy hand on top of Polly's sweaty hand. Frosted blue fingernails on top of Fuck Me Fuchsia. At one point, Polly starts to shake like she's really going to cry. So I stop pushing and look over. Her face is all pink, glassy eyes and just a hint of dark eyeliner contrasting her reddish blonde curls and freckles. And I notice the light is really beautiful right now. I need a cocktail, Polly says when we get inside, and I say there's Stoli in the freezer. Usually I don't drink at home because it's boring, but I guess if there's a time for cocktails, it's now. I pour two screwdrivers, and Polly snorts a line in her room. Do you want any Coke, she says, her voice already different. No, I say, I have to take the car to the repair shop. Or maybe it's too late. Are you okay? I'm okay now, she says. And suddenly, I feel so sad that I don't know how to speak. Polly comes into the dining room and wiggles her tongue, shakes her hips, and puts the mirror on the table with way too much white powder. I snort a line, and oh yes, let it begin. We've been listening to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore read from Sketch to See. So there's this definitely this sense of unsustainability around the drugs and maybe even around the um the ability to project invulnerability forever and we feel the vulnerability even i think poking through mm-hmm. in in this section and but i wanted to i wanted to 
ask you about an interview you did with Vivek Shraya, a trans artist um, who wrote, I'm Afraid of Men, uh, where Shraya says, I am curious about what would happen on a communal level if queer and trans people didn't constantly have to bear the burden of claiming to be resilient on top of experiencing oppression. What if saying, I'm afraid, was just as much of a statement of resilience as I'm not afraid? I love that quote, but I also just wanted to hear your your thoughts on, mm-hmm, on that mm-hmm, quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think... And I think, yes, in this section, I mean, you, you picked a perfect section because that's exactly where the vulnerability comes in. And also through that vulnerability comes a kind of intimacy, right? And um, and I think that's what Vivek is sort of pointing to is what if, I mean, I don't know, I can't even imagine it, to be honest, like, because um, so much of my life and so much of the lives of, you know, queer and trans people that I've known and loved and cared about and looked up to is really about that resilience. Right. And it's about experiencing trauma and, and living in that trauma. Yes. But also, um, I think especially maybe in our work. Well, and I think, but so the other side of that, right. I was going to say going beyond that, but the other side of it is, I mean, definitely in my own work, like, I've been drawn toward vulnerability. And I think the more vulnerable that I can get, you know, the more the work is actually, like, speaking, you know, mm-hmm. and, and also allowing me to speak and allowing me to breathe. And, and I think a lot of that actually, you know, to come back to, say, the beginning of the end of San Francisco and the experience that inspired it of showing all my vulnerability to my father who did not respond, you know, with his own vulnerability. (laughs) Like he did not respond to me, you know, telling him, I told him I loved him, which I felt in that moment. I had no idea that I felt that. Right. And I said, it. he could not even say that he loved me, you know? And, um, but it still felt like healing in a way that I would not. And also, like I was someone else. I was no longer part of them. You know, the whole family was sort of like trying to get me not to express my vulnerability. Mm. And and there was sort of a dynamic like, oh, I was going to kill him. You know, it's like, no, actually dying of cancer. <laughs> he is actually the one who's abused me. And but, you know, that's a classic, you know, thing, dynamic that comes out. And so so I do think in writing toward vulnerability, I think that is the question similar to sort of what Vivek is asking. Like, um, and it it is interesting, you know, that, that, that and I think her question is about fear, right? And so my question is, a part of it is about fear, but it's more about vulnerability. Fear is a very vulnerable, you know, um, feeling, Um, but also, yeah, that's an interesting, but yeah, so I think it's a question that I think is, is useful to be thinking about at all times. Well, one of the ways in in which I think Alexa does is she's paying the bills as a sex worker and her most significant client is Nate, who and her feelings for Nate sort of run the gamut, it seems, between tolerance to tenderness to disgust. And but in many ways, Nate serves as sort of a mirror, I think, for whatever Alexa's going through or a way for the reader to see Alexa reflected back to herself through her responses to Nate. So it gives us a way, I think, to expand the present tense also because we get this reflection back on whatever ways in which Nate triggers her. But I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about their relationship and the arrangement that they create together. 
So interestingly, um, so Nate is, you know, um, an older gay man. And um, he's about, he, he's in his, well, he says he's 50. So who knows? I mean, somewhere <laughs> perhaps 50 or maybe a little older. Um, and Alexa in the book is 21, 22. So, so there's that, you know, 30-year gap between them. Um, but interestingly, Nate has not been out for most of his life. So he lived a married, straight life. Um, and so Alexa has actually had more experience in queer worlds than he has, and also has experienced... I mean, his childhood never comes up, so we don't really know, you know, what exactly happened in his childhood, but it seems like he had convinced himself that he was straight, you know? And so the trauma, even, of, um, you know, being persecuted for being queer has not really happened to him in the same way. I mean, definitely he internalized it. Um, But also the trauma of AIDS has not impacted him in the same way. I mean, has impacted him to stay closeted and be in this marriage, but he doesn't have or at least he has not talked about anyone he's known who has died, even though he is of the generation that would have known all of, all of his friends would have died. But he hasn't had that experience. And so in some ways, he's experiencing queerness through Alexa, you know. And, um, and so some of, their, and some of that is the kind of intimacy that happens. Like, it's not something that Alexa is looking for, um, but it ends up happening. You know, and, and the initiation of the relationship is he... He kind of wants, and this is a typical thing, you know, in sex work, he wants this, this you know, illusion of having, like, a boyfriend or something, right? And, um, and Alexa's not interested in that. You know, and that's a typical, I, I think, often, you know, in sex work, that's the, those are the top-tier kind of, like, um, kept, you know, like, kept boys, kept girls, you know. That's the top-tier, where everyone pretends that there's no sex work going on, but the whole thing, you know, and we can see that perhaps in, like, a presidential marriage right now, right? You know, so some people can take it all the way to the top, right? Like, but most people don't get anything from it. They get glamour. They get like a high class lifestyle. So Alexa's not interested in those things. What she wants is some sort of um, sustainability to sex work, which is not, you know, you make a lot of money and then you make nothing, right? And so, so she, so basically they establish a relationship where Nate pays her monthly. Um, And so... That allows Nate to imagine that they have some kind of relationship, right? Because he doesn't have to, you know, they have sex. He doesn't have to, like, be, here's, here's the money, right? So, and it also allows Alexa to have, you know, basically um, to be pretty comfortable um, and not have to be worrying about, like, oh, my God, am I, you know, have to get that page, right? You know, <laughs> like, this is before cell phones, of course. You know, I have to, like, rush, you know, drop everything. And um, and so that does create a kind of intimacy, you know, because they are spending more time together. And, um, and a lot of it is in Nate's very posh, you know, back bay, um, uh, I was going to say apartment, but you would never call it an apartment. <laughs> back bay townhouse, <laughs> uh, mansion, you know, um, and and also, I feel like, so it's an intergenerational relationship, but it's not, the, some of the things are not typical in, in terms of that. And I think especially that comes out when they end up reading books together. Um, yeah, that's like one of the most amazing parts of the, the whole book, I think. Uh, before you talk about that, I want to I wanna have you read another section that isn't that, but sort of sets up my questions, because I feel like something really shifts in the second half of the book. And I really, I don't know if this is true, but I relate it to 
when Alexa has a scare around an HIV exposure. And then the way that affects um, her relationship to Nate and other ways in which you sort of trouble and complicate the present tense experience in in the second half of Sketch to See. So if if you don't mind reading another section about that, I didn't want to, I want to really lean into this, this part where, where they're reading together. Oh yeah, I and love... we're reading with them. It's so wild. So... Yeah, and I love I love reading parts on air. Okay, and also, it also is like speaking of emotion. It opens me up into the emotion of the book. So oh, I love it. Great. <laughs> Here we are in Boylston, opening the door in the wind tunnel, and then checking in at the front desk, where the receptionist gives us that fake smile and then waves us into the waiting room dungeon. Clinics are so depressing. It's like. They're just waiting for you to die. Why can't they at least play good music? Something with a beat. Maybe a DJ and a dance floor. They could easily fit a disco ball over there in that corner by the dusty plastic flowers. What about real flowers? Even something cheap. Carnations. What about carnations? What about art on the walls? I'm sure there are plenty of rich bitches who would be glad to donate art. Or if not, then give me a couple of 20s and I'll go to the Goodwill to find some wacky glamour. Or at least paint the walls bright colors instead of this atrocious faded gray and tan wallpaper. We're here to take care of ourselves, not to fade into nothingness. What about velvet sofas and herbal tea and steamed vegetables and brown rice? And maybe something to read besides pamphlets about STDs. What if the clinic was like a cafe where you could hang out and gossip and cruise or even read a good book? There could be a library or free massage or acupuncture or hugs, right? What about hugs? Instead of hugs, we just get sterile beige carpet and hand-me-down office chairs and a few boring ads for safe sex. What about makeup lessons or a reading group? If no one wants to read, we could practice all Kevin O'Quan's makeup tricks. I wouldn't mind practicing makeup tricks with a bunch of queens at the STD clinic. What about a DJing workshop? I would love a DJing workshop. Art supplies. What about art supplies? They call my number, and Avery's still holding my hand, and I'm thinking about colored pencils and crayons and magic markers and oil pastels. Or what about making collages? The clinic would be such a great place to make a collage. It wouldn't even cost anything. Everyone could just bring in their old magazines and cut and paste and get to know one another. It would be fun. Avery's squeezing my hand tighter. I can't believe she's 23, but she's never been tested before. They call my number again, and then I'm in another sterile room. This one feels like they sucked out all the air, and some blonde woman in a powder blue cardigan with pearly buttons asks me what I would do if I tested positive. I have nothing against powder blue cardigans, especially not powder blue cardigans with pearly buttons. I mean, I have a lavender one just like it. But that strand of pearls around her neck, real pearls. Those pearls, I want to say. What are you trying to say with those pearls? How would you react if you tested positive, she asked me again. Honey, I'm thinking, I would jump off a bridge. Can you take me to the highest bridge? I need a ride. You don't drive? Then at least give me directions. I want to say that I would go out and do so many drugs that I wouldn't even know my name. My name is Luca. 
I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. But instead, I just say, I don't know. She asks me about my risks. I don't ask about hers. Is she going to give me my results? After she suggests condoms for oral sex, yeah, I already tried that, she finally looks down at the piece of paper and says, you tested negative for HIV. Thank you for coming in today. Do you have any questions for me? We've been listening to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore read from Sketch to See. So this is where, to me, where I feel like a big shift happens for the rest of the book. You've, you've described Sketch to See's narrative as that of being trapped inside a gay culture that offers pageantry without promise, trapped in Boston at this particular time in this particular historical moment. And I feel like we're also sort of trapped in Alexa's moment-to-moment frenetic subjectivity up until now. Um, it, there's sort of this breathlessness to the book. But then after this moment, when she's confronting the possibility of, of, of a diagnosis, other voices start finding their way into the present tense. It feels like a way to maybe bring some of the mobility of, of the third person past tense in a, in a way because we get we get the voices of um, we get the testimonies of gay men at, at AA meetings we get uh, Alexa's responses to watching certain films and and I think most notably we get these really long wonderful sections where we follow Alexa and Nate reading books together <laughs> which is, is just kind of wild because I don't think I've ever read a book where I'm reading another book along with characters and experiencing their discovery and their emotions in real time as they flip the pages. It's, it's really amazing. But it also um, is a space where this reading together is a space where it feels to me like Nate and Alexa can step out of their arranged roles. I don't even know that they know that's what they're doing, but it feels like they're connecting in a different way that doesn't have to do with the pretend world that they've created or the, the real financial relationship that they've created. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about the ways uh, the books within the books function. Yeah. I mean, in some ways that's where that movement toward feeling is really the most like um, intense in a certain sense or the most, um, the clearest. And I think, so the, the reading the books, and it actually comes from the feeling, right? So Alexa is actually reading The Gifts of the Body, um, which Rebecca Brown wrote. And it's a book, it came out in 1995, the year the book takes place in. And um, it's a book about um, a caretaker taking care of people dying of AIDS in the 90s. Um, and she's sobbing and Nate comes in and sees her in that vulnerable moment and he's like well what's going on or he comes in just after she's been sobbing and um and then he says oh well, should we read these books together and so um and so yes yeah, so that opens up this kind of intimacy and so for Alexa I think there's a kind of like intergenerational queer kinship that she feels with these authors, Rebecca Brown and David Wanarovich, that she doesn't have in her actual life. So in a sense, the books are providing that, you know, and, and I think, you know, 
that is one of the glories of a book, right? That if it can provide that, right? But so she doesn't have that in the world. I mean, and Nate is certainly not, you know, in any conventional or, or unconventional way, providing like nurturance necessarily, right? There, uh, that's not like his his motivation in any sense. He might like to think of himself that way, right? But that's not his motivation, you know? And, and it's not what Alexa, you know, Alexa does get some sort of comfort from it, like financially, but... But, you know, she knows that. But but I think the book, like you're saying, like it brings them into their most vulnerable state and they experience that together. Right. And so it's interesting in a certain sense that and I think for Alexa, for her to feel what's going on in her own world, like she feels it the most when reading these books, you know, and um, and for Nate, I think there's also there's this moment at the end of that chapter. Right. Where Alexa says. Uh, where basically, you know, Alexa goes up to her room and um, Nate comes in and she says something like, you know, maybe it felt like the first time, maybe we're in the same place, right, in that moment. And that's that emotional, that space of emotional vulnerability for different reasons. You know, they're impacting it in different ways. I mean, for Alexa, it's she is, is really feeling her own present. And I think in Nate, in some ways, is feeling this generational aspect that he hasn't really experienced. And also, he has a lot of fear, you know, around HIV, uh, partially because of being separate from, you know, the kind of risks and being in a straight marriage, you know, being closeted, etc. So, so yeah, so I think in a way, the books, they open up a kind of vulnerability, and they also, yeah, so, so it's like, they also allow it to be even more in the present, which is ironic, right? Because it's reading something that isn't taking place there, right? This is not their lives, you know? Right. And um, and yet, it opens up that possibility. And I think I also wanted, in setting the book in this particular time, I wanted to show, like, these are things that happen, you know? Like, I mean, there are things that happen in their everyday experiences, but also, like, reading a book is actually something that happens, right? Yeah. If it impacts you. If it doesn't impact you, then forget it. Well, like, when they're reading um, Memories That Smell Like Gasoline, I've, I have this just deep sense that Nate's never going to be the same. I, and, and, like, so that is happening. It's like something is happening, and we're experiencing it in real time in your book. They're reading another book, and, and there's no going back. C- could, you, could you talk a little bit about um, that book? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I love what you're saying too about like liking the, the, cause I did, you know, lit, I do literally, like you said, talk about like turning the pages, especially with that book, because, well, actually with both, because I feel like that is part of the reading experience, right? It's not only what, what it happens to you, but it's what happens to you while you're reading, right? Yeah. Or watching a movie or, you know, all these different things. So originally they are, um, going to read um, Close to the Knives, another David Wonorovich book. And these books for Alexa, they're like, they've come out just a few years before. Um, and Alexa um, has had discovered them before coming to Boston. So they're, in a way, part of her formation as like a radical queer in the world. And I think especially sexually, because David Wonorovich um, presents a kind of world where desire is intermingled with daily experience, right? So desire, it's not something that happens like in a bed or a bedroom, right? It's something that happens on the subway or happens, you know, when you're driving cross country or it happens when you, you know, are walking down the street or it happens, 
um, when you're making art, you know, desire and that and that that queerness. I mean, I, I feel like that is a queering of desire. It's not just desire is sex, right? Desire is everything, right? It's it's what feeds you, like, and allows you to create, you know, your own life, you know, and also connect to other people, right? And um, so they start to read close to the knives, and Nate is like, "Oh, this is too much for me," um, and. And then he has noticed Memories of Smelly Gasoline, which is a much smaller book. And it, it kind of, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a hardback book with the, you know, the cover on without the jacket. What do they call that? <laughs> Whatever the publishing term for that is. But it's very small. It's like 60, 70 pages. Um, and it, it includes um, David Warner, which is art as well as the prose. And and it so it almost looks it could look more like a children's book in a certain way, you know, at least in its form, right? And and so Alexa's like, well, I don't think he knows what he's getting into, right? Uh, but whatever, so let's do it. And he and Nate says, can we just read one chapter at a time? So this is a very short book, and Alexa is someone who's a voracious reader, had not thought of like reading one chapter of this book at a time. How strange! But it allows her to be again in the present, in this very, and also to be looking at the visuals in this very um, almost meditative, but also. Um, analytical way and and her memory of the book the book is you know he is writing David Warner Rubbish is writing that book as he's dying of AIDS you know and it came out um, right after he died um, Close to the Knives came out right before he died Memories of Smell like Gasoline came out right after he died and um, in Alexa's memory that is what the book is about but actually AIDS doesn't even come into the narrative until a certain point. Um, and, and there are these images. And Alexa also, when she, first, when she first read the book, that was the one that was actually too much for her mm. uh, because of the images. The images are very crude in a certain sense. And for her, like reading it when she was 19, she didn't have a way to act. She was like, I don't know what this is. Like, is it? And I think also because they are about trauma and about being abused, um, as sexual abuse, you know, the the images themselves impacted her in this way, where she was like, "Oh," and I mean, she's already read this book many times, right? So Nate has not read this book, and, and there's and there's this there are a couple moments in the book that, in a way, they kind of echo what's happening in the book in a certain sense, in the sense that he is kind of like, almost, I would say, traumatized in a certain sense, you know, and. Um, because the book is actually, I mean, in some ways, is about him in the sense of, like, it's about tricks. You know, he's a trick, you know. It's about, um, like, that, that. I think that in particular, that mm-hmm. narrative. And also, it's not kind in a certain, it's not like, oh, I loved these men, right? It's right. not his illusion, right? It's the actuality. And it's also about AIDS in a way that is very surprising if you don't know that's what it's already about, which he does not know that's what it's already about. Yeah. And, um and so I think there's this, I mean, there's this one moment actually where it is, it is one of David Wonorovich's drawings. And um, I think it's, it's like uh, someone who just has blood dripping down their face, you know, and, and uh, it is a trick, if I remember correctly. And, um, and he's just like, you know, 
knocked out in a certain way. And and Alexa kind of knows this, you know, in a certain sense, but he's asked to read it, right? So right. she's like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, thinking of this idea of like desires everywhere and sort of this transgression of any decorum around where it where it should be. I was just reading more about him as as a, a figure in preparing for the interview, and I can't, I'm sure you, you probably already know this quite well, but I, I came across uh, a man named David Robinson who, inspired by Close to the Knives, dumped the ashes of his partner Warren Krauss on the grounds of the White House as a, a protest against George Bush Sr.'s inaction in fighting AIDS. And the line from Ronorovich's memoir is that inspired this was, what would it be like if each time a lover, friend, or stranger died of this disease, their friends, lovers, or neighbors would take the dead body and drive with it in a car 100 miles an hour to Washington, D.C., and blast through the gates of the White House and come to a screeching halt before the entrance and dump their lifeless form on the front steps, which is just such an amazing, awesome, harrowing line. Yeah, and I think, and you know, ACT UP, there was an action called the Ashes Action, which the, the goal of that was to dump ashes, you know, on the White House. Yeah, and I read um, that his ashes are actually scattered on the White mm-hmm, House lawn, mm-hmm. which... Yeah, that was part of that action, I believe. It was. Yeah, okay. if, I, if I'm remembering the dates correctly. Um, and, and also Alexa in the book, I mean, she has ashes from someone that she knew who died of AIDS who was in ACT UP. Um, through the whole book, she's trying to figure out what to do with them. So that's kind of something that kind of weaves in and out of the book in a certain sense, in a literal way. I, I want to go back, sort of leap back to the beginning in terms of the things that you share in common with, with Alexa Cause, because you've said that there's a difference between writing a memoir and a novel, but you've also said that the difference isn't about whether things have actually happened to you or not, that in both of your other novels, almost everything actually happened to you in real life. So the, both of your your endeavors into fiction have a lot of overlap with your, your own biography. So if the truth of the story isn't how you choose whether something should be nonfiction or fiction— what is? How do you feel your way or think your way into the sketch to see should be a novel versus End of San Francisco should be a memoir? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think when I start to write, I never know. Um, and, you know, my first two books, Pulling Taffy and Someone Used to Sleep Badly, like you said, those are novels. But almost everything in them that happens happened to me. There are a few exceptions. And there was, well, I remember Robert Gluck um, once said something about how um, you always have to throw in into your novels something, um, if I remember correctly, like so, you know, some lies just in order to make them more believable. Um, and so I thought that was a great. So I have some really, and I actually added him into. There's a quote from him, and you know that he didn't write. You know, I'm like as Robert Gluck said, I just made <laughs> up a quote. You know, in in pulling Daffy and so many was just. Like, but actually, with those two novels, a lot of what makes it a novel to me is what I take out more than what is in there, you know? And so I do edit out a lot of my subjectivity that I, if I was writing about me, you know, in order for me, I felt like in order to be more immersed in the book, I had to take that out, especially so many ways to sleep badly, where in that book, you know, in each paragraph, maybe like 10 different things happen, you know, and it might be like, you know, something on NPR, something at a yoga class, something, um, you know, someone calls Alexa, or not Alexa, <laughs> 
<laughs> Wrong book. Someone calls the narrator in that book, his name is Matilda, right, on the phone. Um, you know, walking down the street, there's impending war with Iraq. There's, you know, all of that might happen in one paragraph. And um, so I felt like I had to cut out, you know, a lot of what was going on in my head, like, in order to make it. And so to make it more immersive in a certain sense. Um, and so, and interestingly with The End of San Francisco, which when I started writing that, um, it did, yeah, it started with, a, you know, that visit to my father. I had no idea there was anything about San Francisco. Like that was came, at, like as I was writing it, actually I was writing about New York and I keep this in the book where, and I'm like, why the hell am I writing about like La Tigra? I'm like writing about La Tigra and I'm like, why am I writing about this? And then that opens up this part about San Francisco. And then I was like, oh, this is what the book is about, right? So would that mean that if, end of San Francisco had been a novel, you would have taken that part out. Yes. Um, and also, I think, yeah, so with the end of San Francisco, I really felt like it was about, I was really circling around these moments of my formation and their undoing. And it felt very much, because I was so obsessed with that, it felt like it was about me in a certain sense. And then also I did feel, because I, I did think a lot about that. You know, do I want it? Because I don't know that I feel like of all, like, so-called genres of writing, I think memoir is one of the most predictable and boring and, like, stuck in a very, like, you know, like, boring narrative form, right? And Is um, it a redemptive form? Yes, the redemptive form and also the linear form. And, um, I mean, I get, I mean, I actually love reading memoirs, but, like, most of them, I get lots of great information, but I don't think they're good writing, you know. I'm like, I love that I know all this gossip, you know, and that and gossip is a form of history. And I feel like they're super important. But then, but I feel like often, and I think we're so much told that we need that redemptive arc, right? We need that, you know. And so, so in writing The End of San Francisco, which is really structured like an experimental novel in a lot of ways, um, like, I could have called it a novel, but I did really feel, one, that I was circling around very specific moments about myself, but also that I, that I especially say the, the very beginning of the book where I visit my father before he died, I just felt it was so much more vulnerable as nonfiction, mm. which often I don't think is true. Um, and I wanted to move toward that vulnerability. And so I felt, and I also felt, yeah, so I guess it's, it was those two things in particular for me that made it nonfiction. But yeah, and especially, yeah, like keeping these details, uh, which also, I mean, of course that plays out in fiction. That is the technique of experimental fiction in a certain way of um, keeping the details of how you wrote it in the, in the finished book instead of cutting that out. But also that also felt very much about, that's more like my internal process. And since I wanted that in there, I just felt like, okay, this is nonfiction. nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this redemptive arc and the notion of the assumption that things progress, mm -hmm. that maybe history bends towards justice or that we get better <laughs> as time goes on, which I feel like maybe that's the flip side of what you said about nostalgia, the dangers of romanticizing the past. Even though you've already spoken about nostalgia, I just want to read one of your great quotes about it because I love it so much, uh, where you said, I think nostalgia enacts a certain kind of violence replacing lived experiences with cultural amnesia packaged as revelation. I think when we examine our memories and all of their complications, nostalgia becomes impossible. But on the flip side, if we're talking about now about maybe the reflexive or unthinking ways we might 
presume something happens in the future versus the past. So like maybe some of the reason some of the memoirs tend to lapse into redemptive arcs is because it's satisfying to us to believe that things are always getting better. Mm. But I, I wonder, I guess this is just a long way to ask if you could talk about the differences or similarities between the nineties of sketch to see and our contemporary moment and in, in the ways that they're the same and the ways that they're different, what can we learn from the sketch to see's moment of the nineties now? I mean, the predominant, I feel like there, you know, there's, and this nostalgia for the nineties, you know, it's been going on for quite a while. Right. And it's taken many forms, but mostly it's like this kind of nostalgia for a very particular nineties. Right. And it's this kind of like grunge Seattle, you know, like maybe some septum piercings, some, you know, vintage flannels, you know, and then when people talk about nineties music, right, they're always talking about that music. So like, I know I didn't, I mean, if that music came near me in the nineties, I was like, get away, right. Get away. You know, like Nirvana. I was like, what the hell is this? Keep this out of my space, you know? <laughs> and like, um, and I feel like so, so much, and, the, and it's just so fascinating to me that that becomes the 90s, right? And so the 90s, and I, it's interesting because I've written about the 90s in different ways. I also write about the 90s in the end of San Francisco, and it's a very different 90s. So I'll talk about that in some ways. So, the, I mean, because the 90s were my most formative time, you know? That is when I moved to San Francisco when I was 19, and it is where I found... You know, I went there in search of a very specific thing. I wanted to find, you know, direct action activism, and I wanted to find, like, queer um, outsiders, you know. And I found it. You know, I found, like, you know, queers and freaks and whores and sluts and vegans and anarchists and activists and uh, dropouts and druggies. And, um, and we were all trying to create, like, a world on our own terms, you know. And and that was very specific to that moment, you know, the early 90s, and very specific to that place that I was able to find that, you know. And and I treasure that, you know, and that that is what formed me. But I don't want to look back at that and be like, oh, those were the golden years, right? Oh, wasn't that wonderful? Because actually, you know, at that time, it felt like everyone was dying, you know, of AIDS, of drug addiction, of suicide. And um, it felt desperate. It felt... Um, and I, and I feel like, yeah, it felt like at any moment, like we were not going to survive and many of us did not, you know? And so I think as soon as we put this nostalgia on it, you know, then that's gone, right? All that experience. And I think, so to talk about the world of sketch to see, which is a different nineties, this is like nineties club culture. Um, so it's like knock you down house music, like super layered, like runway, you know? Um, and, um, and it is, so another thing that happened in the nineties that is, it's not the central focus of sketch to see, but it keeps, I feel like it's in the background, which is to me, the nineties, especially this book is in 95. So it's right in the middle of the nineties. Um, and the nineties mark the moment. Uh, so always I think, or at least, you know, for decades, there's been this, uh, in in um, gay and queer worlds, there's been this kind of struggle between a kind of 
assimilationist politic and a liberationist politic, right? So the assimilationist politic is we're just like you. We want the white picket fence. We want access to straight privilege at any cost, right? And the liberationist model, like especially with gay liberation in the 70s, um, would say we want to end dominant institutions of oppression. So end the church and the state, you know, end the nuclear family and monogamy, um, all of that. So I think the 90s marked the moment where the assimilationist side triumphs. Everything since then is just going more in that direction for the most part. And, and so I think that in some ways is part of the trauma, you know, of the book. And, and it comes up in, you know, certain ways in the book where, you know, Alexa is working for the Uncommon Clout Visa card, you know, the card that gives back to the gay and lesbian community with every purchase, you know. <laughs> and um, But also I think that the ways in which gay people, and especially in this book, gay men, you know, want to, like, mimic all the worst aspects of, you know, like, straight, um, macho posturing and, like, that is that in some ways is that's another like central trauma in the book, you know, and I feel like there's a, that's again always been you know in gay culture, but like but I feel like that also marks the, the moment of that triumph and so um so for me, I think you know so the book being about Boston being about this particular time and place, like um, if we look at our cities now, right, they're even more homogenous, you know, arguably. And so, so in some ways, there's, and gay culture is even more hypocritical, you know. And um, so in that sense, those, and it's funny because some of the people I gave the sketch to see in manuscript form to read uh, were people who um, I knew when I lived in Boston and had lived there the whole time. Mm-hmm. And one of them said, uh, how are we going to know this is about the 90s because it's the same now? <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> so I thought, and I think that is a commentary, you know. And I think in some ways, if we're speaking about gay culture, like everywhere is Boston now, you know, and in all the worst ways, you know, and all the hypocrisy, the like self-hatred, like masquerading as success, you know, the... um the total duplicity, you know, that, you know, the like, I'm just so proper, you know, I, I have a husband now, right? So in the 90s saying a husband, that was just like an ironic, hilarious thing to say. But a husband now means that <laughs> you're actually, you know, wedded to the state, right? And um, so, so many of those things are, are, are worse. And I mean, I live in Seattle now and like gay Seattle is not that different than gay Boston, even though Seattle is a very different city than Boston, you know? Um, so I think in, in some ways... Like it does speak to our current moment, you know, just as much. And while also, I didn't, and I didn't notice know this, you know, while I was writing it, but I can say it now, you know. But I think it also, I do mean it in a certain sense to be a corrective, you know, to that nostalgia. Like because for me, like for me, the opposite of nostalgia is truth, right? And so if I can gesture toward that, like in sort of an emotional sense, in in terms of a generational sense, and in terms of. Um, like speaking to a lot of these issues, but without, it's not, you know, it's, it's certainly not written in like an essay, right? But it, I feel like that felt sense is what comes through in a certain sense. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore about sketch to see. So we, we do get at the very opening of the book, 
a, a sort of a hint around the ascendance of this assimilationist um, aspect of the of gay culture with the uh, people wearing their red ribbons to raise HIV AIDS awareness and and the ways it's an an empty action that isn't really an action in any sense of the word action. Um, and in one interview, you were asked about your outside status in the gay community, and, and you answered by saying you don't believe there is a gay community or an LGBT community, and that the notion of one is often used to oppress queers with the least access to power. And I, I just wanted you to unpack that for us, because I feel like this is also crucial to understand Alexa in Sketch to See, essentially, since she is the one with the radical liberation-focused analysis in a world where even, I think, her friends don't necessarily have it. So t- tell us what you mean by there is no gay community and, and the notion of it actually uh, is a threat to the most vulnerable within it. Absolutely. So I think so often we can see this kind of rhetoric of a gay community um, or a gay and lesbian I mean, it's, it's come in different forms, right? There's, so first there's you know, the gay community, then there's the gay and lesbian community, then there's the LGBT community. Now people will say LGBTQ community, right? Um, but I think so often the rhetoric camouflages the very real violence that gay people with access to power, and now lesbians as well as, you know, even trans people have access to power, like um, using that power to oppress everyone else and get away with it. So in one way, we can see that in terms of like gay people gentrifying neighborhoods and then like literally pushing out like the more vulnerable people. Um, so like people of color, sex workers, um, queer youth, uh, elders in order to like, you know, make more money by flipping their property. And, and I'm not even talking about the, the type of gentrification that was unintentional. Now it's intentional, you know? So like in the sixties and seventies when like, you know, gay men were like migrating to San Francisco and buying houses in a neighborhood that they then gentrified. That was unintentional, I think, for most of those people. But now, like you can see, like there was a great documentary about gay gentrification in Cleveland where um, they show how this realtor is like literally doing this all on purpose. And this this happens everywhere. And I think people put up the sort of like sweatshop-produced nylon rainbow flag and they're like, this is the community, right? And, but really, you know, it's, the same people are always marginalized. And those are definitely queer youth, you know, trans people, um, queers of color, you know, queer migrants, and, um, you know, people without homes, you know, people, <laughs> disabled people, you know, et cetera. And I, the, that rhetoric, I think, where that rhetoric of everyone belonging at the same time as enacting that violence, that's what I think is so damaging. And I think if we just said there is no community, like, then we could actually figure out how to make one. Mm-hmm. But if, as long as people believe in these institutions of power, like, that are not helping people on the margins and that are obsessed, like, if we, you know, look in the last, like, you know, 20 years with accessing straight privilege at any cost. So, like, marriage, you know, military service. Like, the military is the easiest one to understand, I think, for most people, but, but even though people don't. <laughs> but, like, you know, and I think that issue, right, the issue to, like, go abroad and kill people and get away with it, you know, just like straight people, instead of fighting for the end of the U.S. military, you know, the dominant institution of oppression around the world, like, 
that comes at a serious cost, right? And it's the cost of people's lives. You know, it's environmental degradation, it's colonization, it's the destruction of like entire countries, you know, corporate, you know, plunder for corporate profit, you know, it's, and it just goes on and on and on. And I think, and that one is just fascinating because, you know, now people talk about trans military inclusion and it's like, that if someone said that like 10 years ago or 15 years ago, people just laughed, right? And that one actually is very interesting because it's the most obviously coming from money, you know, because there's basically just one it's the person who's considered the first trans billionaire. So it's Jennifer Pritzker, donated $1.35 million to this organization called the Palm Center. Mm. And then suddenly this issue became a center issue. No one was talking about it before. And so if you want to know how much it costs to get your issue at the center of the so-called LGBT movement, it's $1.35 million. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> when, I, when I think of your and Alexa's radical liberation focused analysis, I, I, I think of also, I was thinking about that and, and also some of the questions raised in Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts. Uh, about normative homosexuality, and particularly the way she employs the work of Eve Sedgwick, who wanted the term queer to contain within it many types of resistance that were beyond the question of sexual orientation. Sedgwick said, queer is a continuing moment movement, which feels like that could be a, a nice description of sketch to see, too, this continuing moment movement. But it also makes me think of a quote of yours the problem with identity politics is when identity becomes an endpoint instead of a starting point. When you just put gay or queer or now even trans on top of, of an impressive institution and suddenly that's seen as progress. And I, I, I like how you're sort of holding aspects of obviously the straight community, but also aspects of the great gay community to account on these standards. And I just wanted to read something that you posted recently about Kevin Spacey, the accusations against Kevin Spacey, um, that feels like it's as good, it, it is an interesting example of this. I understand why clueless straight people would be shocked and titillated by the Kevin Spacey allegations, but anyone who's spent more than 15 minutes in a gay bar knows that everything he's accused of is standard behavior. What if gay culture were indicted for its willful disregard of bodily autonomy and not just Kevin Spacey? But instead of a liberatory indictment of all of the problems of gay male sexual culture, celebrity, male entitlement, the closet, machismo, etc., we just get a sensationalized media circus where an angry mother wants to jail a celebrity for traumatizing her straight son who benefits from this charade. It just made me imagine that you must get some pretty intense blowback. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean... I mean, I love criticism if it's actually coming from a legitimate place. Yeah. But usually what happens when people try to critique my politics is they just, it's just, and this happens with a lot. This is true, I think, across the board. They just personalize it. And they're like, that Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is, you know, and then they just go down the list. And that's just absurd, you know, like nonsense, you yeah. know. And um, so for me, I feel like being queer itself is about accountability and about mutuality and about imagining, you know, something else. And so so for me, like, until I'm ready to just bury myself, <laughs> then I have to do that. You know, otherwise there's no reason to be alive, you know. And, and I do, you know, I say sometimes that writing is 
you know, I write to stay alive. And I do mean that literally, you know, and it's worked so far. So I have to keep doing it. But I and I think I do different kinds of writing. And I think sketch to see is not the same kind of writing as um, as what you were just reading or as what you know, how I was just talking about, you know, gay politics itself. Um, And in some ways, you know, like in some ways in in writing this book, I did want, like, a lot of my work is about being, is about oppositional queer culture. This book is about the complete absence of that, you know, and being inside gay culture with that analysis, you know, and, like, being trapped in that certain sense. And I feel like in some, I mean, you asked about how the book sort of speaks to today, and I think in some ways that's where we're all trapped, you know, kind of culturally, we are trapped in that, you know, and it it plays out in different ways, you know, and, but it's that similar thing where it's kind of like squashing the potential for um, imagining and creating like um, new ways of experiencing one another and of challenging the violence of the status quo, like under a kind of rhetoric of, it's a very like self-congratulatory non-thinking, you know, kind of, yeah, it's a very self-congratulatory, non-thinking way of um, squashing the potential for any kind of, like, liberatory um, or even imaginative responses. Before we end the show, I I feel like I want to make sure that we talk at least briefly about what Paul Constant uh, nods to in in what I blurbed at the beginning of mm. that you're a keen-eyed chronicler of the life and death of American cities, mm-hmm. and Alexa is a refugee from San Francisco gentrification, and and entering a, a less than hospitable other city, and you've talked about as you mentioned earlier about say like wealthy gay Castro residents fighting against a queer youth shelter because of how it might affect property values. Um, and in relationship to David Wonorovich, you've you've talked about uh, the irony that NYU and the Whitney Museum both sort of market him, and yet are are the sources of some of the greatest gentrification in the area where he actually lived, and so but are now charging for um, your ability to experience his his way of seeing the world. But but I also feel like I guess my question around then versus now. And around having a a radical liberation analysis that includes this question around gentrification, I, I wonder your thoughts because I, I I appreciate you reading reading you lately talking about your experiences in Seattle, which I think really reflect a lot of what's going on in Portland around property values and development and how the homeless are treated and and, and who's benefiting from all of these empty empty condos. Um, when so many people are on the street, but I also feel like there's this predictability too, like in the phenomenon, like where white artist types or will move into neighborhoods of, of color either because they want to legitimately live in a diverse environment or because, um, simply because of economics, it's cheaper and they end up normalizing the neighborhood. So like the mission is no longer the mission um, because, you know, other whites will move in once they feel like it's quote unquote normal. In other words, gentrified or gentrifiable. And I guess what I wonder is um, your thoughts on a resistance around that 
when we sort of know the predictable, it feels like this pattern repeats itself. Um, but it's, it, I'm not sure that the solution presents itself. And, and, and maybe you have some thoughts on that. <laughs> um, well, I love that Paul Constant quote because I feel like it, it gave me insight into my own work in a certain sense. And I mean, the next book um, that I have in some way is very much about Seattle. Um, and, you know, this sketch to see is very much about Boston, the end of San Francisco, and so many ways to sleep badly are very much about San Francisco. Um, but also the end of San Francisco is also about New York. Pulling Taffy, you know, is also is about all these cities as well. And um, and I do feel like my work is very place based. Um, and, you know, people have asked, like, is Boston a character in Sketch to See? And I do think, like, in a very, like, palpable sense, you know, it is. Like, because I was so meticulous about, like, s- the specifics, I really wanted people to, like, feel Boston or someone in Boston to open up the book and be like, Boston, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think this question of gentrification, in some ways... In some ways, it plays out differently in different places. I mean, it certainly plays out differently in terms of the time, or, you know, when it happens or, how, you know, how it happens. But in certain ways, it's the same. It's the same thing over and over again, you know. And it all comes, I would say, you know, for the most part, it's coming from, like, structural disinvestment, you know, of the 60s, white flight, you know. Um, and, and I mean, actually, I was living in Baltimore temporarily recently. And, and Baltimore is, you know, it's a city that, Still, um, I would say half the city feels like, like half the neighborhoods of the city in those neighborhoods, like 70% of the buildings are boarded up or burnt down. And you can go from, you cannot drive for like more than a mile or two without driving through like block after block after block. Like neighborhoods that burned down in the riots in the 60s and have never been rebuilt. And, um, And so you can really feel that like palpably, like that it's never been rebuilt, you know, and and those neighborhoods are all almost 100% black. And then there are some neighborhoods, there's like a, it's kind of like a border, like it's quite small, the strip where it's, where it's um, neighborhoods that are kind of, kind of mixed and have this illusion, like, oh, there's all this cross-pollination. And there is in a certain way, but it's all... And also, and, and in Baltimore, I feel like, I, I, I don't know, I'm just coming to Baltimore because it's so striking. Because now there is this gentrification in Baltimore, but it's existing at the same time as literally half the city is boarded up. So, mm-hmm. like, and, and, like, property values are very low overall in, in Baltimore. Like, you know, you could buy, like, a, one of those burnt-out houses, right? That would be, like, $8,000 or something. You could buy, like a kind of run-down house in a neighborhood that, like, people might be a little bit afraid of for, like, $30,000, you know. This would be, I'm talking, like, a three-bedroom, you know, like, three-story row house or something. And you could buy, like, a very nice house for, like, $200,000. In some of these other gentrified cities, this is, like, unthinkable, right? But at the same time, like, the rent is not that different. Like, and, and that is this, it's so artificial. And I feel like in some ways it's instructive because in some of these other cities, you can't see how artificial it is, partially because of some of the things you're talking about. Because, you know, of like white artists and activists and radicals and weirdos, you know, living in these neighborhoods with somewhat, uh, 
you know, some degree of cross-pollination and some degree of sustainability for a while until, boom, it crosses the line. You know, someone like quotation mark discovers the neighborhood, you know, the fancy restaurants move in, et cetera. And then, you know, it's all written on the, you know, then everything starts getting torn down. They build the new, you know, lofts, et cetera. But, but in Baltimore, like that, dynamic is happening without the intermediary stage. Mm. The intermediary stage did not happen. And you even have like these districts, they're called um, uh, arts, uh, arts and entertainment districts. They just declare a neighborhood. And so one of these neighborhoods, it's the, the gentrified term is it's called station North and it's North of the train station. Um, and there are these in- arts institutions that are, they're great institutions in a certain way. You know, like there's this theater, the Parkway Theater. I would go there a lot. You know, it's independent theater. It's like very comfortable. It's, and, but you walk in the door and you, it's not like, oh, look at this beautiful old theater that survived. You walk in the door and you're like, architect, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, where did they get this money? And but this is a city that does not have money to, to have books in the public schools, right? Where there are rats you know, like just crawling through the halls and they often don't have heat in the public schools in a city that's very cold, right? And this um, theater, they spent $19 million renovating. And I'm like, where did they get that money? And it's, I looked it up, it's like international capital, literally. It's like $6 million from a Greek foundation. Then they got like Johns Hopkins University, like, you know, pushing through all this money. And there's, so, so all these, and they're, I mean, it's, they're not doing it because they want, you know, it's for the kindness of their heart, right? They're doing it because they see, like, here is this place where we can completely remake it, right? Yeah. And But it doesn't succeed because it hasn't, like, the city hasn't, doesn't have that intermediary stage. So it's really weird where you'll have this these highly funded arts institutions that they're, I mean, I guarantee that the the... The reason they're there is to gentrify the neighborhood. And they do to a certain extent. Property value goes up. uh, People are forced to move. But, like, literally next door, you know, it's just, like, an abandoned lot. And then there's a McDonald's across the street or, like, people nodding off on their stoop because they have not had access to resources in 40 years. You know, literally. You know, and um, so it's a weird... I feel in some ways it's very instructive because it's so obvious Mm -hmm. because it's, like... Giving 19, it's not like, oh, look, there were all these cool spaces there, and then boom, this thing happened. Like you would say in, say, the Mission or in the Lower East Side or, you know, in most of the like celebrated gentrified neighborhoods. And, but I feel like it's the same mechanisms that create that everywhere. Well, what are the, what are the questions or feelings that animate your Seattle? novel i mean if it, it, whether they're gentrification related or not yeah totally so um well the seattle book is called the freezer door um it is nonfiction, <laughs> um and i would call it a lyric essay because it is circling around um desire and its impossibility so the impossibility of actualizing desire perhaps within my own specific life um and through that lens um it's it is about gentrification um, it is about the hypocritical lore of gay male sexual culture. It is about the dream of queer and whether that's actually possible. Um, it is about this idea of the city as a place where we meet everyone and everything that we never imagined and whether that's actually possible anymore. And it's also about um, the writing process itself and language and when language can and cannot express what language is meant to do. Mm. 
Speaking of language, I would love it if we could end with another reading because the ending is really exhilarating and the language becomes super chewy and musical, I think, at the end. And and since we discussed that your book, it does have a plot, but it isn't based on plot. So there's not going to be any spoilers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if we have you read a little bit near the ending. And even if it isn't an ending in a narrative sense, it does feel like we we reach an, some sort of emotional ending in some way. It feels, or even a musical ending around the language, and I'd love mm. for people to hear it. Oh, but the mirror. It's kind of comfortable watching the show from this angle. Someone wearing head-to-toe designer garbage comes in and stops in the doorway like she's seen an accident. Hand to her chest. And she says, girl. And I say, girl. And she says, girl. And now we're best friends. I'm studying the colors of my hair, the way the glitter changes with my eyes, yes, my eyes, and lipstick, and those crystals in my ears, all the necklaces piled around my neck. What a collar. People flowing in and out as I say, welcome. Welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Glorious. Fantastic. Fabulous. Phenomenal. Philosophical. Fierce. Yes. Fierce and flaunting it in your fabulous phlebotomy. Flawless. Fantabulous. Tantalizing. Mesmerizing. Marvelous, magnificent, Magna Carta, carte blanche, Blanche Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois, Boise, Idaho. Don't call me ho, I prefer hooker. Where did I get this? Oh, Louis Boston. I get everything there. So reasonable. This is just a little resort where for a dip in the Charles, yes, my makeup Thank you. I managed to slip in for a consultation at Neiman Marcus just before last call. Of course. Oh, yes. Never leave home without Chanel. Never leave home, sweet home. Oh, darling. Not a wig at all. Sorry. My hair just grows like this. I know. It's soft. Welcome. You're welcome. Yes, I live here. All the time. Just need to decorate. Oh, a bump? No, but thank you. Maybe later. X. You mean extrava, extraterrestrial, extra sensational, extra sensenbrenner, extra saltines, extra sass, extra pass the sugar, extra pour some sugar on me. Yes, I know you mean Excalibur. Just look for the girls in platforms. Tell them Alexa sent you. Alexa Arrivederci. My pleasure. Oh, maybe I should go out there too. This is Miss Alexa Avalanche reporting from Axis on Sunday. Louder than I thought on News 11 at 11. No, News 9 at 11. News News at News. Upstairs, the photo booth. A totally different crowd. Tell us, Miss Avalanche, tell us about the crowd.
The crowd looked scandalized. Behold Miss Avalanche as she falls against the bar, flings herself gently on the surface, and then slides to the floor while Phil Collins croons one of his soulful tunes. Prunes, because we care about your digestion. Should I get another cocktail? Just to look at that grenadine. Grenade, granada, champagne, tostada. So much prettier than diamonds. Who needs diamonds when you can have garnet, ruby, carnelian? Nothing does Queen Grenadine justice. Drum roll, please. And then somehow... I'm alone in the secret bathroom, and there's no more music. But that's okay. We've got lights, a mirror, toilet paper, and hot water. What more could we need? (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the show today, Matilda. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. We're talking today to Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, about her novel, Sketch to See. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Matilda's work at MatildaBernsteinSycamore.com. And I'm particularly excited to add an extended reading from Matilda's forthcoming, not yet published, book of nonfiction, The Freezer Door, to the Patreon bonus archive. It is not only one of the most memorable additions to the archive, But after our discussion about the difference between nonfiction and fiction for Matilda, a difference that is not about whether something is true or not, you can really hear the difference in the prose from this nonfiction reading and the fictional ones from our main conversation. This excerpt from The Freezer Door joins supplemental material by Laylee Longsoldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Horace Gander, John Keane, Jen Bourbon, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.